Well, good morning. It is such a blessing to be able to stand before you today in Pastor Gerald's uh, seat. Steed, thank you, Pastor Gerald, for allowing me this opportunity uh, again to stand before the people of God and bring the Word of God. Uh, thank you, Lisa, also for um, reading for us today. Parents, I hope you'll forgive me for uh, that little bit in there when you have your discussions later, um, but you should have a great discussion. It's good for our uh, children to learn about uh, the issue of pride uh, when they're at their ages. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. We thank you, Father, that we can celebrate your joy in song. Uh, it has been so good, and what a glad experience to be among the saints of God and hearing the great volume of sound that's going to your name uh, in music and, and in song. Thank you that you are the one who sent the Son for us. Bless our children. Would you make it so that Christ is known to them in a great and awesome way? Now would you strengthen me to preach, and would you strengthen the hearers to hear? May you reveal uh, yourself, may you make yourself known personally to someone who has never known you as Savior on this day. Do it so that your name is magnified among six billion who are yet without Christ. Raise up from among us others who will go in a unique and faithful calling to proclaim the gospel where the name of Christ has not yet been heard. Now, God, pour out your spirit upon us. We give you thanks for all that you are about to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Christmas season is one of those times when the rejoicing experienced by many seems to escape some of us. For Christmas brings reminders of what was not this year that we wished would have been. Or it reminds us of the goals we wanted to reach but are still very far from them. Or of that loved one who is absent from joining us at the table this season. Or of the beginning or improvement of a relationship with a significant other that never materialized. Rather than getting completely excited about Christmas and making a nativity scene mixed with cartoon characters in our front yards, as so many of our neighbors do, some of us feel like we want to go to the house next door and unplug inflatable Santa so that all the air goes out and those happy reindeer just fall right on the ground. Yes, confession is bad. Um, <laughs> for what we are feeling rather than bliss, is a lack of care for us on God's part. Recently, I've played bars to the God Don't You Care song. Some things just have not happened in the way I've wanted them to happen. They have not happened with the speed with which I want them to happen or with the ease which I have wanted them to happen. It has just made some aspects of life really tough when all I want to do is focus on getting a much-needed Christmas vacation. Yet the Lord, in his kindness, has shown to me, as I hope he kindly will show to you, that the issue with me and God is not whether he cares for me. The issue instead is that he cares for me at all. 
I saw this as the Spirit led me to Psalm 8 so I could look again at the coming Son of Man, the one who cares for me. In Psalm 8, David begins with an exclamation of praise about the majesty of God's name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The majesty is of David's covenant Lord. When we say Yahweh from the, the Hebrew, is represented by all caps in your English text, Lord in all caps. Um, but David also recognizes him as the sovereign and judging Lord of his people, Lord in lower caps on the next line, the Adonai uh, in there. Although this God is personal to Israel as Lord, the majesty of the name extends to all the earth, to all people and the fullness of the created order. David's exclamation about the majesty of the Lord's name also recognizes the Lord as the creator of the universe. He says, you have set your glory above the heavens. This becomes the means by which David finds the name of the Lord to be majestic. And it becomes the basis by which David is awed to have that same God demonstrate care for us. So David is going to combine the majesty and care to reveal three great things about the God who cares for you and for me. First, he who cares for me is greater than the heavens in his glory. Again, in verse one, David looks into the sky and sees the sun of our solar system and thinks about the God who created the sun and the thousands of visible stars. Stars are glorious, but they are only reflective of your glory, Lord, for they are created. Your glory is much greater than their glory, yet you allow me to call you Lord. You, the creator, voluntarily revealed your name to Israel as I am who I am. You entered into a covenant with only Israel by that name. How could the creator do that for creatures who would rebel against his word? Just that much alone makes your name mighty and makes me give that name majestic praise, says David. When theology speaks of a God who is above the heavens, it speaks of God being transcendent. That is, God is far removed from his creation by a distance that cannot be measured because he is a wholly different being. It is not a spatial difference. It is a character difference. God is the only being with being within himself with absolute and unchallengeable power and complete knowledge of all things. A being like that should not be thought of as one with his creation or nature, or that he is in all things like grasses and trees and animals, or that he is so close that he could be a personal friend or even interested in creatures at all. The false idea of deism a system that removes God from being involved in the affairs of this earth at all and says that the earth is like a clock that God has wound up and let go on its own, 
And also the deity concept in other religious systems that are offended by the concept of a God-man, that God could take the form of a man and come down. Both of those systems come from an overemphasis on the transcendence of God. Yet, we do serve a transcendent God, a being with glory greater than anything in the heavens. He must be greater in power in order to make all the things he has made. And the beauty and the glory of all things visible must flow from one who is at least as glorious as the combined glory of all the things that we see. This same creator would subscribe himself that he would do this to stoop down and to care for his people by covenant makes his name even more glorious. God has bound himself to provide for us, to rule and defend us, to be compassionate toward us, and to defeat all of his and all of our enemies, the ancient catechisms say. He will do this for people who are helpless without him and can offer him nothing in return. This God has chosen to care for me and my needs is the one who is greater than the heavens in all of his glory. The creator is the one who looks down and cares for us. Second, he who cares for me also uses children to silence his enemies. There in verse 2, you see, it says, out of the mouths of infants and children, you have ordained strength that you might steal the enemy and the avenger. The same God who has glory higher than everything we see in the heavens also has enemies. The creator with the majestic name has people who hate him. There are some Enemies who scoff at his existence, taking for granted the logically designed order of all things and the fact that these things have a reason for existence. They fashion them for themselves, gods, so that they can live without accountability to the true God. They do not want commandments except where commandments are to their own advantage. There also are some who seek to avenge themselves against God, viewing the Lord as a great wrongdoer or that belief in him is the basis for all world conflicts. They therefore would go so far as to oppose those who would speak truthfully of how the Lord has revealed himself as savior and judge. They want to avenge themselves against this God and ideas of him that they think are wrong. They find God to be the great problem. In order to deal with his enemies and avengers of these types, God does not marshal out the angels of heaven immediately to slaughter such rebels, although he very well could, and one day he will. Instead, for now, in mercy, the Lord silences his enemies and our enemies with the mouths of infants and little children. Again, referring to verse 2. On this verse about the babes and the sucklings or the infants and the children and God's silencing of the enemies, John Calvin says, quote, that the providence of God, in order to make itself known to mankind, does not wait until men arrive at the age of maturity, but even from the very dawn of infancy shines forth so brightly 
as is sufficient to confute all the ungodly who, through their profane contempt of God, would wish that his name were totally extinguished from the memory of men. God, in order to commend his providence, has no need of the powerful eloquence of rhetoricians, nor even of distinct and formed language, because the tongues of infants, although they do not as yet speak, are ready and eloquent enough to celebrate the glory of God. Now, exactly what is meant by this verse has been a question of interpreters throughout the ages. How does God use the mouths of children to bring about the strength to shut up his enemies? Again, John Calvin says on this verse, he continues, Whence is it that nourishment is ready for them as soon as they are born, but because God wonderfully changes blood into milk? Whence also have they the skill to suck, but because that same God has, by a mysterious instinct, fitted their tongues for doing this. David, therefore, has the best reason for declaring that although the tongues of all who have arrived at the age of manhood should become silent, the speechless mouth of infants is sufficiently able to celebrate the praise of God. God needs not strong military forces to destroy the ungodly. Instead of these, the mouths of children suffice him to destroy and exterminate the wicked. So in keeping with our series, as we look at this Old Testament passage, we see it pointing forward to the time when Jesus comes into Jerusalem to be recognized as the Davidic king. God, using the mouths of children to silence his enemies, is the very thing that happens in the temple in the triumphal entry. Jesus comes to Jerusalem offering a promised everlasting kingdom, but the Jewish leadership rejects the offer of Christ as king of Israel. The Jewish leadership is not among those laying branches shouting, Hosanna, son of David. They become indignant. When the children in the temple, without any prompting, recognize what should be obvious to all, that the king has finally arrived. The children, therefore, begin shouting, Hosanna, save us now, son of David. You are our savior, they are saying. This is what they are shouting. But the leadership tells Jesus to stop the children from crying out what the leadership thinks is blasphemy. It is to them that Jesus quotes Psalm 8 and says, Have you not read? Out of the mouths of children and infants, you have ordained praise. The praise is following the Old Testament Greek translation of strength. It silences those who would deny that in Jesus, God the King and Creator has come down to man. So infants cries. Babies, nursing, children's praise of Christ, like when the children sang last night in the, the concert for those of you who were here. All are things that give witness to God, the creator. Psalm 8 says that God has made these items to be strength, to shut up the mouths and the actions of both God's enemies and our enemies and those who would seek vengeance upon us because we have a walk with the Lord. They would bring their hate, 
their denial and their scoffing against us. Yet every time a baby cries out in utter dependence, man's self-sufficiency is brought low and the care of our God is again exalted. The fact that the children need or the fact that we need says someone up there must care about me. I know if I cry, he will hear me for he has put in me the instinct to seek out nourishment and help from somewhere. Last week, all three of my adult daughters were home together. The two older ones flew in from each coast in order to be with their youngest sister as she celebrated turning 21 years of age. Even as Pam and I were having a great time having all three of them around, I was reminded of just how loud our home can be when we are all together. <laughs> I also could tell that I am getting older because loud bothers me more and more now. <laughs> but in hindsight, I realized that the Lord was using the loudness of the voices in our home to remind me of who cries loudly of his care. Our enemies are just loudmouth enemies. Our God is the creator who cares for us. He uses the needful, untimely, painful, and sometimes spoiled, narcissistic, irritating, and distressing cries of our children to silence his enemies' attempts to dismiss his reality. Our cries out to him acknowledge all over the world that there is a God who is up there and instinctively put in us to cry out to him. Third, he who cares for me shows great mindfulness for me. And I am now in verses three through eight. David again speaks of his reflection on the universe. He takes time to observe, not just simply to see without taking time to ponder and meditate on the creator. This verse challenges the very lifestyles many of us live as believers. We, just like the world, move in fast-paced routines that leave little time for contemplating, musing, reflecting, and exploring. But in order to see what makes God's name so majestic, this king of ancient Israel, who also happened to be the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel, and also was the primary worship leader who appointed the Levites' assignments around the tabernacle. So he certainly was as busy, if not busier, than any one of us. King David took time out of his routine to look into the daytime and nighttime skies. He saw the celestial bodies, thought long and hard about their origins and their present existence. And as he's doing so, he says, whoa, whoa. You who made all of these, you care for us? You who gave earth a moon and a, a sun and have all sorts of stars out, out there, you think about us? 
We are nothing compared to all those things out there. Why do you, while looking at all those wonderful things, remember that there are frail mortal beings back here on one lonely planet called Earth? You who give power to the sun, why do you pay attention to the world of the children of Adam? There's a great play that goes on in the lines in there between man and, and son of man. One line on the second line, you have the word Adam in there, referring to us in our humanity, the ones who rebelled against God. And in the first line, you have a different word in there, enosh in the, in the Hebrew, referring to our frailty. Why do you care about the frail children of Adam who rebelled against you at all is what the psalmist says. He's meditating and says, God, how could you look down upon us? There it is. The thing that I needed the last two weeks more than ever, the things that we need to keep from despairing at lack of accomplishments at the end of this year. There is a God who is mindful of us and cares for us. He pays attention to us. Why he would do that is such an amazing thing. It is like that reality TV show, Undercover Boss. I understand it still comes on on cable TV somewhere. <laughs> Undercover Boss sends an CEO in, in, in camouflage or undercover the CEOs of huge companies to spend time in the jobs with their, their workers at, at even the lowest levels of, of whatever the jobs are. Of course, days later when the CEO is revealed for who he or she is to the ones who are down there separating the recycling from the trash products or to the ones who were making the coffee for everyone else each morning. The workers then find it incredible that they have rubbed shoulders with the boss and that the boss would come and see what is going on in their little worlds. Well, what about when the CEO of the universe takes time from ruling in glory and say, says every moment of every day, let me look down on Adam's offspring and see how they are doing. Yep, they're still rebellious and anxious and as desperate as ever, but I still want them to know me. And I still want to embrace them. And in grace and mercy, I will take care of all of their needs. And I will do so in a special way for those who have trusted in my son. The whole earth, as David says, should recognize the majesty of a creator and ruler of the universe caring about any one of us. Theologically, in contrast, or better, in complement to transcendence, God coming near is known as his eminence or his nearness. Overemphasis on nearness accounts for the origin of other false ideas like pantheism, that God or all is God and he is one with his universe, or panentheism, that God is in all things of nature. Many Eastern religious concepts come from this overemphasis on nearness, but rightly understood with transcendence, eminence is the dagger in the heart for deism, and transcendence then becomes the dagger in the heart for pantheism and panentheism. For our God is a wholly different being. 
He is the boss who works on an infinitely number of floors above us by being a completely different being than us. Yet that wholly different being also remembers us, pays attention to us, hears our cries, looks upon our sorrows, our struggles, and our pains. This is what makes David say, how majestic. Keep in mind, too, that when David penned these words, he was living in a pre-scientific age. He did not have a Voyager or a Hubble to give him a picture of what we now can see in the universe. Now, it's not necessary to have those things in order for us to take time to ponder on what those things in the sky mean as far as a creator is concerned. We just have to pause long enough to stop taking the sun and moon for granted. But the images, these great images that I love to see coming in from NASA that are splattered all over the NYT science pages, these images should magnify the incredible greatness of the creator's care for us even more. It's because Jupiter is just a speck of dust to him. Our sun is but the flick of a firefly to him. Musefi, the largest known star to us, 400,000 times the size of this earth, is one of the marbles that is in God's bag. The Milky Way is just one of billions of billions of chalk marks on the blackboard of the universe. Yet this God heard us this week when we asked him to fight for us, to strengthen us, to rescue a sibling for us, and to give us some sign of hope. But he does more than think about us. David says he made us a little lower than the angels, a reference to the creation account in Genesis 1 where God says, let us make man. We are made, the handiwork of a God intimately involved in the creation. We are not meaningless beings that evolved by happenstance. And we are just below the angels in ranking of his created beings, not below the animals. My dog and your cat are not equal to us. He has crowned us with glory and honor. Again, a reference to Genesis 1 and to God making us in his own image. The image of God in man is what gives us dignity and worth. It is what makes the oppressed stand up and say, I too am somebody. He also has given us dominion over the works of his hand. Again, David is recalling Genesis 1. He is making references back to the creation story. God intends for the whole earth to come under his rule as he shared his rule voluntarily with man in the creation. And his mandate is that people would subdue and bring all things in every sphere of knowledge and work under his lordship. God just does not, is not in looking at religion being under his lordship, but everything. He's looking at science and education and economics and medicine and philosophy and law and every other discipline and work you can think of. Just like the entire animal world is under the rule of man rather than this being the planet of the apes. All things in his present rule are to be brought under his glory through God's rule as God shares his rule with man. So what do we do when we see a passage like this so that we can see even greater majesty in God and his name? First, I would suggest we need to rejoice 
at scientific discoveries in the universe, even though the conclusions that many draw from them might be naturalistic. We don't have to draw naturalistic conclusions because we know there's a reason for our existence. We know that everything can't come from nothing. There must be a being who always has been and always will be, that being being God. So we don't have to come to naturalistic conclusions. Instead, the discovery should only serve to further reveal the greatness the beauty and the glory of the creator who made all things, things we are just beginning to see out there in the universe. Second, as suggested earlier, we need to spend more time intentionally reflecting on God and who he is in light of the created order. We might need to schedule 30 minutes of time to view the Perseids or the Leonids or the Geminids meteor showers as they grace our nighttime skies, you know, the, the one just went by in the last two weeks. We might need to sit by the window and ponder a full moon placed in the heavens by one far greater than that one big bright ball in the sky. Or on a clear night, we might need to think about the visible stars and ponder the nature of the one more amazing than the collection of all the stars. Even right now, I was just looking in the New York Times yesterday, there is a nice green comet that's going to pass through our visible sky that only becomes visible once every 5 to 11 years in its orbit. We might need to go there and watch as it goes by and says, oh, what a God. What a God that put that out there in our sky. Third, we must remember that our worth rests in the glory that God has given to man. Although we are but a dot in the universe, we are significant enough for God, uh, to God for him to tr entrust this present world into our care. You are significant enough for him to make you in his image with reasoning for moral capacity, self-awareness, self-preservation, and the ability to know him. He says that you are crowned with glory and honor, even though your classmates might compare you to those they deem more physically beautiful. He has shared his splendor with you and he is not measuring you by your income or by the number of parents that you have in your home or by your marital status. He is not measuring you by your social mobility, by your grades, or by the hardness of your past. He is not measuring us by our children's success, neither by our wrinkles or our gray hairs or our medical test results or the numbers on our bathroom scales. None of these things are the measure by which we have individual work. The measure is that this incredible God says, you mean much to me. You mean so much to me that I show my care towards you. I remember you and I'm coming to see about you every day. And he said it loudly, too, in order to make sure that you and I heard him, because he did not just speak it by the universe, but he has also spoken it by the perfect child of Adam, his son, Jesus. Long after the original creation in the beginning, the great agent of creation became human. God, the transcendent one, became God, the eminent, and visited man on the earth. 
That God whom the angels worshipped was made lower than the angels for us. That God was crowned with glory in order to give glory to us. That creator went to the cross and was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That ruler of billions of galaxies rose from the dead with all power in his hands so he could give life to us. And though we do not yet see all things under him, as the writer to the Hebrews says, in the end, all things, all of his enemies, all of creation, all of his saints will be placed under his rule and he will give all to his father who will then be all in all. The name of Jesus is majestic because it is the only name which you may call upon in order to be saved from the wrath of God upon your sins. Yes, I am talking to you who may have walked in here today as a skeptic or said, I don't have need for organized religion or I don't believe any of that Jesus stuff. I need you now to sit up and pay more attention. Only Jesus had a death sufficient to satisfy God's wrath because he perfectly obeyed God. Only Jesus had the authority to get up from the grave to prove that he had the power of life after death within himself. Only Jesus' name can be invoked before God the Father as the ticket into God's presence. When you and I leave this world, and we get to the front door of eternity. The only thing that will get you into heaven is a bloodstained bill with the name of Jesus on it. God will not accept your effort, your trying to be good, your attempts to go to church, and what you think is the goodness in your heart, which is really sinfulness to him. No, the name of Jesus is majestic in the face of God and the name of his beloved son is the only thing that is going to move him. And his name is majestic to us as the name of the one in whom we believe alone freely in order to be saved. If you sit among us as an unbeliever today, one who has not, a called, has not called upon the Lord Jesus. I urge you, I plead with you today to say to the Creator, I need to be saved from my sins. Please forgive me by the blood of your Son, for you are Lord, and I believe that you did rise from the dead for me. And if it's too much for you to pray that, see me after service so we can talk about it. But don't walk out of here today denying the Creator who sent his Son for us. You are in danger of the wrath of God this hour and every hour. I want you to know the majestic name of Jesus and call on him today. A very popular sermon illustration tells a story of a little boy who was scared of the dark and had trouble going to sleep at night. One night, his father determined that this would be the night where the light would go out so the child would learn that there is nothing fearful in the dark. As the father walked out of the boy's room and clicked the light off, the child pleaded with him once more for the dad to leave on the light. The father simply responded, son, it'll be okay. God will be with you. But the little boy quickly replied, yes, but I need someone with flesh on. The God with the excellent name and the glory above the heaven 
put that flesh on so that he might become the very present son of man who will place earth's dominion back under the stewardship of Adam's children. That same creator God wrapped himself in a human body looking at our scared and often fearful lives. We wanting God to be with us and said, I will be that flesh next to you so that you will have nothing to fear. Jesus is that one who has visited this world because he cares for you and I. And Jesus' next advent will be very soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your care for us. I thank you for the reminder, even as we look at a passing meteor shower, or the sun draped behind the clouds, or even a crescent moon at night, or the stars that are visible above the haze of the city. These are just small cosmic neon signs saying, I'm here and I love you and I care for you. I made all these things and you mean much to me. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for speaking to David about the son who would come, who would restore all things. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Take us from this present fallen world and redeem us to yourself forever and ever. Thank you for being with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.